Welcome to Hit Subscribe. I'm your host, Chase Alderton, Growth Marketing Manager at Recharge. This episode, we're talking to Taylor Holiday, Managing Partner of Common Thread Collective. We focus on how consistent social media creation can boost engagement and hone your communication skills with your target audience. We discuss how quickly the e-commerce landscape is changing and how to keep up when today's groundbreaking ideas become outdated in a matter of months. We also chat about entrepreneurship and how impactful mentors and literature inspired Taylor to empower his employees to buy into the vision at Common Thread Collective and fast track them to pursue their own personal goals. So let's get started. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, stoked to be here, Chase. Thanks for having me. So before we hop in, uh, give us a little introduction on who you are and Common Thread Collective. Yeah, so I'm Taylor Holiday. I'm the managing partner of Common Thread Collective. We're an e-commerce growth agency that works uh, exclusively with e-commerce brands and guiding them on their journey between zero and 30 million. So we have, we're a part of a larger ecosystem called Dream Labs, which includes four by 400, where we actually own and operate our own brands as well. Um, And then we have a community group called Your Admission, where we have about 250 early stage entrepreneurs sort of uh, working together uh, to sort of build their brands in the early stage. So we get a a really fun view across the e-com landscape in those three ways. It's one of the reasons I was most excited to talk to you because you have the kind of like agency marketing strategy side of things that you can own and operate, but also you own some of these businesses. So you can kind of have a little bit of a playground in real time and see how some of the stuff works that you're, that you're working on. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, you know, it's, it's both the ability to express our own ideas and also put to test our own opinions um, in a lot of, a lot of really ways that we think make us uniquely empathetic to the journey, right? Because we are living it alongside of our clients. There's just something about what is required of you um, in building an e-commerce brand and making decisions and outlaying cash against opportunities that hold you accountable to ideas in ways that um, other people's money doesn't. And so we just, we like that about it. We like that constraint for ourselves and our own ideas. And we'd like to be able to share that with our clients and be co-journeyers, if you will, in the process. Yeah. I mean, everyone always says it. It's, you know, it's do what I, what I say, not what I do, but you actually have the experience to now do what you do. You've, you've done it before in the past. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's, so let's start with this. Uh, one of my favorite things to, to watch of yours are these kind of like marker breakdowns. Yeah. Um, for anyone who knows Taylor, uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's some really, really cool uh, remarketing strategies. There's unit economics, all these really cool things. Definitely go check them out. I'll link them in the podcast description here. Um, but let's start there. So where, where did that come from? So if you know me at all, like I even have one in my hand right now, I'm obsessed with whiteboards. Like I, um, a much more of a visual learner than I am an audible or, um, like written word consumption. Like I just need to express my own ideas out on a surface like that. Like it's just, so if back when in the previous life, when we were in a physical location, I would be writing on whiteboards all day. It's sort of like a legendary sort of attribute of mine. Um, maybe, yeah. So, so that was where it began is that that's how I've always sort of expressed my own ideas. And then, um, what I've learned is that that longer form specific methodology of doing it, um, in a single take around an idea, on video is a method for me to crystallize my own thoughts. Um, And one of the things I've learned as somebody who like has a lot of ideas is I've gotten a lot of feedback in my life about how people understand my ideas. And oftentimes they're very different than how I intend for them to be understood. And so putting out content and writing and doing that sort of expression is a forced crystallization of my own thought. And then I also get to check for understanding with people to see if I'm doing it in a way that makes sense. And so that, that process is like really selfishly super helpful for me. And the fact that other people enjoy it too is just sort of like a cherry on top, but it really just helps to crystallize my own thoughts around the work that we do. It's actually one of the, the side questions I had is, are they actually all one take? Because they look like one yeah. take, but that could just be some movie magic. <laughs> yeah, no, they are. They, I, try, I try and do that because I think it, there's something about the like, again, it's this process of forcing myself to crystallize my thought that I do a lot of work beforehand. I'll write out sort of like a process I'll go through and outlining the key points that I want to get to. But there's something about like the flow of the conversation that I think is important for me. Cause that's a lot of times how I have to state it to clients in a sales process or to express right. to our company. And so for me, it's just this, this uh, repetition of consistently clarifying the thing, complex ideas in simple ways is um, I think one of the most important jobs 
of a leader of somebody in the e-commerce space that's trying to teach um, is to be able to do that. And I'm certainly not a, not an expert at it yet, but it's 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 helpful to work through it yourself. I love that. I, I have a personal philosophy that all, all confusing ideas are just simple ideas compounded. So if you right. can if you can break all that stuff down, if you can get it down to its simplest form and have everyone understand these simple building blocks, it's a lot easier to kind of build it back up and understand that in the future. And, and what happens, like, so that's so good. And what happens is I get feedback where it's like people will say in the comments, like, hey, what does this acronym mean? Or, hey, when you said this, what are you referring to? And all that does is that they're just, it's feedback that is so incredibly valuable to go, ah, okay. I will be a better communicator if I can eliminate the use of acronyms, if I can bring clarity when I say this phrase versus that phrase. And But unless you solicit feedback, like you're going to be robbed of the opportunity to improve the way that you communicate. And so I think it, putting your work out into the world has that magic if you can tolerate it. You're going to be a lot longer winded with no acronyms, but it will be clear. <laughs> I can promise you that. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you determine what videos to create? So are there is there a backlog of things? Is it just people requesting certain things? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination. So we have the incredible gift of you, a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Orndorff, who runs marketing for CTC, who what he has brought to our organization is like strategic thought work around content. So whether that's thinking about a funnel that we're trying to create on the paid side, whether that's trying to think about a keyword set that we're going after for a pillar post that he's generating, um, an opportunity for search volume on YouTube, like wherever we are going, that, that will often form a basis for it. And then other times it's like, hey, just go in the room and what are the three things that you care about? So, so often like content ideation is born out of conversations that are happening in our own businesses or with clients. And so those are the two sources, either it's something that just happened. It's a conversation that I'm happening. I, I'm having a lot in the clients or on our own brands, or it's like a source strategic keyword plan from Aaron. And those are usually the two beginning points. Do you feel that to an extent you're giving away some of your secret sauce? I mean, if you if you look at this as a piece of content, it's yeah. just another piece of content, whether it's video or blog or whatever it is. But then yeah. you look at actually what you're putting out there is something like a like a retargeting ad funnel. That stuff is not really proprietary, but that stuff right. is straight from your brain, straight from your company. That's stuff you make money with every day. How does how do you figure out, you know, can I give this away? Can I not give that away? Yeah, you know, there's this um so Sarah Silverman is a comedian and she has this quote that I've taken to heart very much, which is, she says that the hardest thing about being a comedian is that in six months, all of your concept or content is either obsolete or offensive. Um, and the reality is that's true in marketing too. And so instead, what we want to establish ourselves as, as the source of new ideation, if your game plan is to take ideas from anybody, me or anybody else, and copy and duplicate them, there's a depreciating value of ideas in repetition. The first time that they come, and this is sort of the Seth Godin purple cow idea, which is that they are most effective the first time in use. And then every time you pick up my idea or anybody else's idea and replicate it, the odds are it's going to be less effective. And so, and then the reality is in three months, it's going to be completely obsolete because Facebook's going to come up with a new ad product or whatever it might be. And what we've now established ourselves as is we get very often clients come to us saying like, hey, our agency kept referring to content that you guys were reading. And so we figured it might be just worth coming to the source. And so for us, that trade-off is worth it, is the idea that, yeah, it's going to happen. People are going to take it. And, and the reality is like our mission statement, the reason we fundamentally exist as a company is to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And what that means is that whether that's through the publication of content, through the direct service of our clients, the purchase of our own brands, if we're accomplishing that, then we are behaving consistent with the mission. And so someone taking my ideas and having success is consistent with what I exist to do as a human being. And so in that sense, it's not a threat to the business. It's actually amplification of it. Very cool. And very well said. I'm not even going to drill in any further. Like that was, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> if all of your answers can be that straightforward, this is going to go very smoothly. Yeah, all right. All right. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so, so one of the things I wanted to do today um, that I'm excited about is uh, I mentioned, I, I am a big fan of yours. Uh, a lot of content you put out there. Um, so what I want to do is kind of take a look back at some of the old content you've put out a couple tweets, a couple LinkedIn posts, um, sure. just a few things and kind of reassess them. Um, and they're about a whole bunch of different things. So some of them are, uh, first one I want to ask you about is a work from home. Some of them are about actual, uh, actual work, actual marketing strategies, um, just a couple awesome. random things. So I'll give you a, a little bit of, um, of context and then I'll let you expand on those ideas. Cool. Love it. So this first one is um, about work from home, like I mentioned, um, you had a post a few weeks ago saying uh, creative talent we've been able to add to CTC since we've gone fully remote is wild. It's opened so much opportunity. 
Yeah. It's a little counterintuitive to what a lot of people think about work is that when you're in a space that more of that creativity comes. So what's your, what's your take on work from home? Yeah. So I could talk for hours on this. So I forever had a narrative that, um, I was a leader that had to lead in person. Okay. I grew up in the locker room. I was an athlete. That was the environment I understood. I'm an emotional person. I'm enthusiastic. I'm energy. And I feel like those are sort of like, in a lot of ways, this world is me leading with my hands tied behind my back. That's what I've like. But what I've learned so much is like, that was just a narrative that I created that I can as easily undo. And there are so many benefits to this remote work situation. And one of them that we've discovered is what you've described is that we, our office was geocentrically located in an incredibly expensive, not very diverse part of the world. The talent pool that I got the choice to participate in and made a lot of poor choices within that, but in terms of like the way that I constrained and created boxes around the possibilities was very limited by that geographic location. And now we are entirely free of that constraint. And so now we get, we went from a t- potential talent pool of 5 million people to 300 million people. Like what that unlocks as possibility is just insane. And we've noticed it is that suddenly the quality of applicant, the talent level of the people that have come into our organization is incredible. And like we are reaping the benefit of that in really, really cool ways. Um, and so that has like been a fostering then. And one of the things that I believe is that like creative creativity in particular, like you can inject creative process that helps to fuel creative ideation, no doubt about it. But when you inject a human being into the organization that has those attributes, it has a compounding effect on everybody around them. Um, and so I think that more than we've given people creative process, they've brought with them creative process and ideation and energy that has been really helpful to our organization. Creativity is 100% key. You're, you're right. We, we're fully remote at Recharge. We've been fully remote from the start. So we've always looked at hiring everyone outside. Cool. Um, I'm based in Los Angeles. So when we were looking at growing a marketing team, a lot of my teammates, we thought, let's bring everyone in office and let's do kind of a marketing hub in Los Angeles. And now fast forward a handful of months and everyone's all over the country and all over the world. So definitely hasn't worked. But it's, it's, it's super exciting to see all the content, all the random things that people bring in from just different perspectives and different nationalities and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just think that the way the where we're going in the world is like, I, I just fundamentally believe that we're on the precipice of like a, a truly global e commerce marketplace, a truly global workforce that is going to be enabled and they're going to be the most diverse asynchronous fully remote workforces that have ever existed. And like, if we're going to participate and differentiate ourselves from our competitors from other people, then it's important that we are able to access and participate in that movement. And um, in a lot of ways, like that's a gift that COVID gave us that I think we would have been severely behind as an organization if we didn't weren't forced into that behavior. It's awesome. I I was going to say that this I've tried to stay away from COVID talk on these podcasts. I think everybody's gotten enough of that. But when you spin it positively, you're you're 100% right. That's exactly what you look for is you look for a silver lining something to take out of it. This is one of them. Yeah, oftentimes these things are catalysts for considering I remember like one of the weird things that happened to me was the first week home from COVID was the most creatively energized I had been in years. And it was because suddenly I had a whole new slate of problems that I was handed. I had to think about building systems in new ways and finding and solving all sorts of new problems and clients and the market exploded. And it was like, it was just all energy. And it unlocked like, like I, even, even something as dumb as like, my guest room needed to be turned into an office. And I got to reimagine my home. My garage needed to be a gym. And I got to, like, all, all of a sudden, it was just, like, creative energy of new things. Now, there's some fatigue that comes with that. Don't get me wrong. And there's a trade-off there. But there's definitely ways in which this is going to allow for new businesses to be developed that never would have been developed, for things to be solved, for people to get opportunities are all going to come from this. There's no doubt about it. Totally agreed. And we're going to get to to new business opportunities in a second. I can't wait for that. Moving on here. uh, Another post of yours. One of our media buyers just got hired to run a run growth for a billion dollar brand. I'm stoked for them. Replacing them won't be easy, but I love seeing CTC become a platform for people to fast track their careers. Feel free to come use us like a trampoline. Yeah. It's an awesome statement. It's one of the coolest things I've read in a while. I read it and found a dumb smile on my face thinking like, Mm -hmm. that's really, really cool. I'd love to work for this guy, but what's, what's the philosophy there? Yeah. So, so one of the core 
tenant of Common Thread Collective is a program that we offer inside of CTC called Tell Me Your Dreams. Um, and every employee goes through it. And what it is, is you meet with a licensed therapist every two weeks and you identify a dream for your life. And then the first Monday of every month at CTC is dream day. And you stand up um, and you declare to your coworkers what your dream is. And then we put you into pursuit groups to help you achieve it. And it was built on this premise. The relationship between a company and its employees should be symbiotic. If I'm going to ask you to come and work for me as the equity holder in the company to my benefit for the sake of my mission that I've established as the most important thing of my life, I should be willing to ask you the same thing. I should be willing to ask and care about what it is that you want for your life. And then we will serve each other for as long as those things overlap. And then when they don't, we should celebrate our directional change, right? Like, so for me, like as an entrepreneur, the idea that someone owes me some sort of endless loyalty to my mission or to my thing is just fake. Like it's not real. And instead what I want to do is find a season where we can serve each other's future outcomes better. And if we do that really well, and every day you show up to work, you feel like you are closer to becoming the person that you want to be, who you're going to be at my company while you're there is going to be the best version of you. I believe that. And so my interest is your interest. I am interested in seeing you become the person that you want to be. And if that includes being a CMO or getting this promotion or launching your own business or becoming a zookeeper, I don't care. Like I'm not there to stifle that. I'm there to fuel that. Um, and so that's just core to who we are. And because CTC is a place that we have built awesome training programs and people are learning and you get access to tons of data, I know it's going to happen. And does it suck? Is it hard when we lose an awesome person? Yeah, of course it is. Like there's a cost to us for that. No doubt about it. Um, but at the end of the day, like that employee, like I genuinely from the bottom of my heart am so excited for him and his family and like what it's going to do for his opportunity. And there's nothing better in the world than him being out there celebrating his time at CTC and me celebrating him. Like everybody wins in that scenario. Um, and to, to, to try and stifle that for the sake of fear of losing somebody doesn't actually serve either of you in my opinion. That's incredible. And most people don't have that philosophy. I'm sure you know that already, but that's, well, it's that's scary. a really awesome and, thing. And I don't actually think it's out of balance. It's, it's scary. Like when you look at an organization, people are so valuable. Like the idea, and when you find someone that can like, you can turn your brain off to a space and trust that it's being done better than you can. Like it's so valuable to somebody to, especially to a founder early on. And so there's a lot of fear in that loss. And one of the things that I've learned now being in business long enough is that everyone, including myself, is like, is replaceable, that the organization can move on. And so on the other side of that fear, you just realize that you can keep going and you solve the problem and that reduces the fear. But early on, like you, you're not sure what will happen if they leave. And you tell yourself all these scary stories that oftentimes my experience has been is that like, they just don't come to fruition in the way that you're often afraid that they will. I read a book recently, there was a quote where a uh, CFO asked a CEO worried about money saying, you know, what happens if we invest in these employees and they leave us? Right. The CEO responds and says, well, what if we don't invest in them and they stay? Right. Then, you have a, then you have a bunch of guys working at your company who aren't of quality and they don't really add any value to you. What happens when you hire giants, when you hire amazing, talented people, you know what? They have lots of opportunities. And that's a reality that you have to live with. And it forces you into creating an experience that that, that makes talented people want to be, to be inspired, which only makes you better, right? And so all of those things end up serving the same outcome, um, even if they seemingly in the short term do come with a cost. And that is real. There is cost to losing great people. Um, but the environment that you're forced to create to try and recruit and maintain them um, is actually something that makes you better as a company. Couldn't agree more. Let's move on to uh, some product talk. So well, this one's about unboxing. Your unboxing experience is the only marketing channel with a 100% open rate. Act accordingly. Yeah. This yeah. is one of my favorite ones because I've been screaming yeah. about uh, this unboxing touch point that everyone gets all the time. and People seem to forget about it. So dive into unboxing. Go for it. Yeah, it's so funny because like one of the things I love about Twitter is it's forced me, forced me, a fairly long-winded guy, into thinking about how to say things succinctly. And when you get it right, it feels so dang good. Um, and so like that idea, I've expressed in long-winded ways, but that was one of the few times where I feel like I really got it clearly in terms of what I was trying to communicate. And it's fun when you do. But um, yeah, the reality is is that it's so easy um, to focus so much of our attention, especially as early stage e-commerce businesses on the acquisition of the customer um, and to ignore 
what happens once you've captured them. And it's it's partially exploitive. It's partially just like we're so that's where the revenue most presently comes from that our attention goes there. Um, and then what gets lost is that the actual way that a business builds and grows sustainably long term is by the ability to build that organic flywheel that customers turn other customers or other people into customers, right? And the way that you do that is by, we sort of have this phrase that we use as this marketing rubric for any piece of content that we use and it's mission, magic, money. Do you create, does, does every touch point that you have reinforce the mission? Does it create a moment of magic or serendipity or unexpected delight that people want to talk about? And then is there a mechanism for that purchase or that experience to turn into more money for you? Is there a monetization opportunity? And I, you know, I was just on a call. We, we have this accelerator right now where a portion of our admission group, we've like taken five brands and I'm going through the founders and one of them just sent me a gift of, of his product and his product is super cool. But I just got really candid with him. Like, man, I, you sent it to me. I opened it and it was styrofoam in your box. No thing. Like, and I didn't take a picture of it. I didn't send it to anybody and it's now sitting on my shelf. And that'll be the end of the journey for the product. And you want more than that. I know you do. And so considering that, um, I think is just, is hypercritical. Totally great. One of my favorite examples is uh, United Sodas of America. They send these like brilliantly branded sodas. They're all one singular color on the can and you open them up and it's just this rainbow of yes. soda and yeah, it's gorgeous. Yes. And they sit, they, they sat in my fridge for like three weeks before I drank any of them because they were just too pretty to do anything with. And then eventually I drank them all and got more because I wanted the, the pretty colors in my fridge again. It's unbelievable. So, so one of the things that, so I love is there's a, there's a company called first media, um, that is a, they make social content. They run a bunch of Facebook pages, like so yummy and a bunch of these like craft DIY blogs and they're in LA and they have one of their creative frameworks is they, they, they reinforce this idea that you are always creating for your audience's audience. Okay. You are trying to equip your customer to say something about themselves to the world. Right. And so if you think about what it, what is the kind of thing your customer posts on Instagram? What is the thing that they want to tell their friends? And if you can design to make them the hero in their text threads, to make them the hero on Instagram, you will win. If you make it about you, the brand, and something you want to say about yourself, then the conversation is going to end there. Because I don't want to propagate that message. I want to be the hero. And I need to equip the person to do that. And there, like, there's so many ways to do that. Like one of my all-time favorite examples, right? Um, and like this is just packs or baseball cards growing up that has a stick of gum in them. Um, and this is so like, no, like it's so odd, right? Like the, one, it's like just totally exposed food. There was no wrapper. People were putting it in their mouth. It was sort of insane. But why is there gum in a pack of cards, right? Well, because 30 years later, I still remember it. And it still was that bit of serendipity and unexpected delight that made it matter and made me want it. Um, and like just considering that you live in this infinite creative universe where you can do anything in that unboxing experience um, and not to think of it just as a cost center. So, so oftentimes like things like viewing employees as cost centers will be the same sort of ideology and mental approach that will make you view your unboxing experience as a cost center. Um, instead of seeing them both as having the potential to create value in excess of their cost and really holding them accountable to that idea versus just uh, looking at what their sort of decrement is from your bank account. Super interesting. I was a card collector growing up as well. I know the exact same feeling. I'm, I'm for the yeah. video people watching this. I'm smiling, watching, uh, hearing you say that because it's you're totally right. You open a pocket, a pack of cards, and there's some gum in there, and I know exactly what the flavor is. I know yes. what I'm looking forward to. I can remember that from 20, yep. 30 years ago. Yep. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, okay, taking a, a bit of a shift here, this is a politics post. I promise we're not going to get political, and I'm going to relate this back to e-commerce because <laughs> there's a way here. Okay. So so stick with me for a sec. You posted one saying, local election flyers in my mailbox right. for two candidates. The system sucks. Just weeks of people trying to destroy each other. No one actually wins. And there's a picture with it. It's it's just the two local candidates. Yeah. And it's clearly one just trying to bash the other one and the other one trying to bash the other one. And they're just two negative, negative posts here. So without getting political, my, my theory is that uh, the, one of the reasons we're so caught up in this whole presidential election and all these other elections is that the system is broken, clearly, but we're trying to solve, not even actually trying to solve the problem. The, the problem exists. We're just trying to work within the system. That's one of the reasons why I have such high yeah. respect for entrepreneurs is that they step out of the system and they figure out a new system. They figure out a new solution here. So I don't know if you want to talk more about 
this exact post or this political election or whatever it is, I'll give you the floor. But um, that's kind of how I relate it is that solving, solving different problems and think about things in different ways is what an entrepreneur's job is. Yeah. So I love, there's a quote um, from that, that from a theologian that I respect, who, who he says that your system is perfectly designed for the outcome that it's getting. Um, and I think this is a thing that is required. Like if you are willing to accept that premise that your system is perfectly designed for the outcome that it is generating, it, re- it offers you so much optionality into improving and doing things better and different. Right. And so if I, so as an example, oftentimes like I'll sit with a business and I'll, they'll be frustrated that their LTV is really low, that no one's coming back for the product. And my counter would be like, I actually just think you've designed a system to produce a really low LTV. So what if instead of being frustrated in externality, like you accepted responsibility for the thing that you created, because that would also then give you the choice to recreate it and to decide that you could design a system to produce a different outcome. So when I think about like this election flyer, right, what I think is like we have a system perfectly designed to divide us. It's perfectly designed to make us angry and spiteful. And whether no matter who wins, I somebody's going to hate them and think they suck. Because half the people in the country are going to hate. Right. All I've gotten is flyers telling me how bad the two candidates are and how corrupt they are and the worst possible things they've ever done. I now know. Right. And so I look at that and I go like, well, in this case, we have a system that's perfectly designed for the outcome. So if I was a candidate, to your point, what I would begin to think about is how do I produce something different? And so to to tie this back to e-commerce, and this is this is again, I'm coming out of a conversation where this was directly applicable, is um, when I think about businesses that are frustrated that they're CAC on Facebook is deteriorating or that they're experiencing this volatility, um, my, my counter would be, well, the, the again, if you change that, if you remove the externality and you say, the system is perfectly designed for the outcome, my Facebook advertising is perfectly designed for the outcome that I'm getting. What, I, what it does, again, is it allows you to consider what you might do then that would produce something more remarkable, would produce something more novel. Um, and what that'll actually require is actually creative, innovative thinking. And I think in that place, there's a lot of opportunity to do incredible things. And it's not in the place that follows in the rut of what everybody else is doing, because all of those systems are producing the same kinds of outcomes that you're getting. And so why would you want that? If that's not what you want, then don't behave that way. And so that sort of inconsistency, now, now don't get me wrong, that's not simple. I'm not simplifying the idea of novel thought, but I look around and one of the, some of my favorite businesses right now are ones that are doing really novel things on the sales and distribution of product, right? Whether it's like Mischief, who's doing really fascinating things, or I had a call with yesterday with this guy, with, with this guy who's basically designed a system that basically the retailer, like his premise is it's an SMS-based quiz funnel. Um, and what you end up with is a person. And the person is your personal esthetician that then acts as your retail gateway to skincare products. But you never have a relationship with a retailer. You have a relationship with a person. And that person that is, they are responsible for providing you ongoing relationship. You basically get a friend. And I, like, so these are all novel ways. And so now think of building a Facebook ad that leads to a text SMS funnel that like, now you're talking about a completely new thing that is going to be able to talk differently in ads than everybody else. That's not going to lead to a Shopify store on the same theme. That's like, and so as you start to think about how to produce a different outcome, I think you start by evaluating your system. And then tying that all the way back to the beginning is this is why you give all this stuff away. Cause in six months, everyone's going to be doing this. So we got to exactly. figure out another new way to, to figure out how to do these things. So the people that will win are the ones that are able to consistently reimagine the system. Um, in new yep. ways that will will drive them into new adoption. Now, there's some other macroeconomic factors here that aren't as simple as just you come up with a new idea, you win. But um, but yeah, I think in general that's that that there is value in that um, ideation. Awesome, awesome. A couple more here. Uh, coming back to e-commerce. PSA for e-commerce brands: slow down. Your growth rate doesn't matter the way it feels like it does. Let your organic traffic percent of your total be velocity constraint. Fight yeah. the temptation to scale your paid spend independently of your organic demand, your margin will disappear. Growth yeah. rate is something that everybody is talking about all the time. Why yep. is growth rate, why does it not matter as much as I feel like it does? Because all of the stories of the heroes that we worship grew fast, right? Like at least most of them, it seems that way. It is one of the main things for me um, is that I just think that that's the story. That's the, the thing that we've been sold is 
that whether it's the Inc. 500, like I, and I, I've fallen prey to this, right? Like the 500 fastest going companies in the world is a magazine that sat on every shelf. That's an award that people put in their LinkedIn bio. Forbes 30 under 30, how young can you become successful, right? Like every one of these are social triggers that make, lead us to believe we're behind and that we have to go faster. Um, and I, like, I want to, like that statement, that PSA was, it, it is a personal experience that I am stating to myself, which is so often the case when I'm tweeting is like, it's born out of a reminder to myself that I'm experiencing. Um, but in particular with e-commerce, um, and I'm going to try and do this without being able to show numbers to explain this in a simple way, but hey, one of the problems, yeah, I know exactly. I'm going to like <laughs> visually draw off my hands, but um, is that so often the, the defining attribute for whether I increase or decrease spend um, is my Facebook account ROAS, right? So let's say I'm getting a two-to-one ROAS in my Facebook ad account, and that is um, like a good outcome. It's generating for me a net business result that I'm happy with. Okay. And let's be, and let's be clear because you were you're getting in trouble for yeah, acronyms earlier. ROAS, gosh. return on ad spend. ROAS. There you go. Yes. So for every There's dollar I spend, I'm making two dollars back in my Facebook ad account. Okay. Well, what that means is that for that subset of customers, 50% of the revenue that I'm generating is going to Facebook, okay? 50% of the revenue. Now, if you look at the whole revenue of the business, it's likely a much lower number because there's some amount of organic sales that are happening alongside those. So let's say for the sake of the example, 50% of the customers I acquire were paid for at that two to one rate and 50% of the customers I acquire were done on an organic basis. That means that my cost per acquisition would be 25% of the revenue, right? So 50% of the 50%. So I follow with the math. Yep. Okay. Now let's say the media buyer whose job it is to scale the spend against that target the next month is able to double the ad spend at the same ROAS which for media buyers would be an outcome they would celebrate, okay? If you can double your spend while maintaining the efficiency, that's a great result as a media buyer. But now I've gone to $200,000 in ad spend, okay? And I've generated $400,000 in revenue. So last month it was $200,000 in revenue and I generated $200,000 organically, right? So we said 50, 50, 200,000, 200,000. The next month I've generated 400,000 that I've paid for but I've only grown, or let's say the organic was stagnant. It only was 100,000 again. So now I've generated $500,000 in revenue, but for 400,000 of it, 80% of it, I've paid a 50% CAC, okay? So now 50% of 80%, right, is 40% CAC. So now I, I have 15% less margin, but none of the ad metrics changed, but my margin disappeared in the business. And this is what people don't understand about like when I, because so much of their business is the Facebook ad account, the Facebook ad account, the Facebook ad account, and it's the driving force is that you can be succeeding in the Facebook ad account and still deteriorating the margin of the business, right? So you've just got to be considerate of the way in which you're growing demand in other channels, because even at a two to one, which is a pretty good outcome, it's about a 50th percentile outcome in Facebook, like no business can sustain giving away 50% of their margin. You won't be profitable. Like, so if that's where all your customer acquisition is coming from, it won't work. It won't work. It looks great on paper. If you haven't if you've done a video on this one, maybe this is one you should do a, a marker video on. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, I'm a numbers guy. So this stuff totally makes sense to me. It's, it's, a, it's a fake statistic. It's a vanity metric at some point. You're, you're scaling, quote unquote, but you're not actually scaling. You're actually hurting yourself. Yeah, well, I would just say it's an insufficient metric. It's insufficient to be done on its own. It still is indicative of something that's happening. Like what we'd like to say is like data reveals truth, right? Like so right. in the Facebook ad account, it is true that you spent $200,000 and you made $400,000. That's just a fact. But what's absent from the story, if that's all you look at, is the fact that you did not acquire any other customers any other ways, right? Like that that organic channel didn't grow. So I, rather than it, like, there's this like, we, everyone wants to paint with these really broad brushes or the silver bullet metrics. And the reality is that's really hard. It, like there's nuance here. And so what I would just say is that ROAS is insufficient um, as a metric. And that, that idea of the organic to paid ratio, what percentage of your customers did you not pay for as a percentage of the total? If you can maintain that, then the profitability doesn't deteriorate. 
then it maintains. Because if I if I grew 100% and I grew my organic 100%, I maintain that 50-50 ratio. Now it works. And so when I call it the velocity constraint, what we'll often say is that you can only scale your ad spend consistent with your ability to scale your organic demand. And that's that's harder and longer and people don't want to wait. And so that's why they get in trouble. And that's going back to all the stories of heroes came to rise super quickly is no one has the patience for that, but that's what it requires to build a successful business. Right. And there's a whole question around capitalization of e-commerce businesses and what your position is in terms of your capital versus other people's and what their intent is and what your your exit strategy is, whether it's strategic acquisition, which is going to be less about profitability than it is to sell. Like it, The other thing I just know is that for like when I speak, it's so important to contextualize that most of the people I'm talking to are our people, zero to 30 million early stage e-commerce business owners. And we sell e-commerce businesses. I'm a, I'm a week away from completing a transaction on one of our businesses. I sold another one six months ago. We buy them all the time. I know, I know this for an absolute fact that at the early stage, your growth rate does not matter. Early stage e-commerce businesses get sold on SDE, seller's discretionary earnings, which is your EBITDA plus whatever you paid yourself. That's what they get sold on, period. Now, once you get up to 30, 50 million, like, those things, it does matter. Like that, So again, it really depends on the game you're trying to play. But for most early businesses, the rate at which you're growing is not important. Again, it's it's a great clarification point. There's context to everything. Just because we exactly. say something one time on a podcast doesn't mean that it's, you know, eternally Universal true. Universal so, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good, good context. Um, moving on, I, I uh, pulled one of these from Aaron Orndorff, actually. So I, I got to get to this one because it's a content quote. And uh, I'm a marketing guy, so I love the content stuff. So Aaron says, content is easy, data-rich, timely, and tactical content that, one, moves from an accurate what to a practical how, two, explores the why, and three, doesn't bullshit its audience as hard as F. Also, you get what you pay for and what you bleed for. I just love the quote. I think it's awesome. There's way too much content in general out anyway. How do you get to a place that's valuable content? How do you get to a place that's actually that people are actually going to use? Yeah, so, man, there is no greater temptation than to try to use data to make your story true versus the other way around. Um, And because you know what sucks is you have a hypothesis of this great idea that would be so awesome if it was true. And then you go look in the data and it turns out that it's not. And so one, to be honest about that, to be willing to look your the numbers in the face and not, well, if I just pull this one out, then the correlation's a little stronger. Or if I just, you know, tinker with this conversion rate, because that period wasn't really, you know, like you can do that endlessly. And uh, I'm a big fan of Edward Tuft, who um, does, does a lot about statistical design and really just about charts and honesty in charts. And, um, and it's such a great book because it calls into account how often we use data to manipulate and prove a point. And I think what Aaron's getting at is that to one, do a lot of research is hard. To have access to good information is challenging. You want to produce content fast. That's the temptation. Um, and then to subject yourself to edits and critique is challenging. That requires a humility. That's challenging. And then to be really honest about the story and to find stuff that's compelling. Um, it's hard. It is really challenging. And, and there's this tension, man, between a world of marketers that is driven by case study and is driven by um, you know, successes and the ability to show off what you've done um, that is really tempting. And it's tempting because it's powerful. It works. People are compelled by it. Um, but it, what we have found is that like, if, if at the end of the day, they find that through the facade, if, if all we did was sell them, that when they get there, it's not worth very much to us. It deteriorates really quickly and the value doesn't last and it's really hard to build a business on that. Um, so the Aaron's a dreamer, he's hopeful, he's got so many good ideas um, and he's also rigorous. And I think that's part of what makes him really good at what he does. And it's just, it's freaking hard, it's really hard. So I empathize with him. There's also the piece of content production that and we've talked kind of about speed and about how it's it's not, you know, the the greatest thing to, to push for, but speed and content is a real thing because if someone gets that piece out before you, now you're behind exactly. the people again. So there is and an element SEO of, implications, right? Like, so, oh, so yeah. we, we, we fought this with COVID, right? Like there was a mass temptation to own the narrative around the data related to COVID without making assertions. 
right? Like, so one of the things that we are pretty disciplined on is I think that one of the place people get in the most trouble is prognosticating, is trying to predict the future. I think it is an incredibly, incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and acknowledging that um, and reporting what is versus what will be, I think one is sexier. Everyone wants you to tell, like if I could tell you and I came on here and I was like, I guarantee you, I can tell you the CPMs on Facebook in Q4. That would be great. A lot of people would tune in and I'd be full of shit. Like, because the amount of variables that go into that is far beyond my capacity to see them. And so um, we want to do our best to be thoughtful and to consider all the inputs that might affect the output. Um, but but th there is this challenge, like even like, we, so the, the tension we felt with the COVID thing was like SEO. We knew there was going to be this search volume around these things. How do you state it in a way that's honest, integrous, but also does move fast and does produce information and says, this is what we're seeing. We don't know what it means yet, but it's there and it's available and we want you to follow along. And I think that's really the key is to, to provide what you have, be honest about it, um, and avoid the temptation to draw insight or prediction from it. Totally agreed. Shout out to Aaron. Appreciate the uh, the context for that, that last question there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, last one for you before we jump into some rapid fire questions. So this is pulled from a 2 p.m. email. Um, it's a bit of a long one, so, so bear with me for a sec. It's expensive to compete to acquire customers. Those companies have deep pockets. What they don't have, though, is an average order value that's anywhere close to ours. They may have millions of dollars in the war chest, but the day of reckoning is coming if it hasn't already for a lot of DTC brands where they can't afford the customer acquisition cost. I'm going to give you the floor. How does CAC play into this average order value and ultimately lifetime value? Go for it. Yeah, so if you think about... Um, what sort of media buying arbitrage represents is it simply the delta between what it costs to acquire a customer and what they pay you, right? Like that's, and if you think about, if we back that out a layer further then and we say, okay, well, what, how do you get the, the cost of acquisition? Well, it's cost per click, right? Um, and if cost per click is a function of CPM times CTR, then at the end of the day, what happens is that as CPMs rise, your ability to produce CPCs, cost per clicks. So as the price of advertising increases, the price of the traffic increases, and the elasticity of your conversion rate, so meaning your ability to constantly improve it, to stretch it, has real limits. Like you're not going to be able to endlessly stretch conversion rate consistent with the rise of costs in a platform. Um, so what that means is that for brands that have low margin, or brands that have a low AOV, there's a real limit to their ability to be first order profitable. Um, and so the business models that, and, and this is why like, so some practical examples of this playing, this idea playing out, like why did mattresses become a massive online media acquisition engine? Well, it's because they have a massive AOV. They have tons of gross margin. And so they were able to go out and spend a lot of money to acquire a customer and they had deep pockets to do it. And so they're able to pay more for a click than you can and they can still win, right? And so that industry was sort of perfectly built for, uh, for the, the, the D2C or the e-com paid acquisition world, right? Um, similar like silicone wedding rings. Like when we started Kalo, right? The beauty about silicone wedding rings is they have a tons of margin. This is a very cheap product to produce that we could sell for $24.99. Now, what happens is there's now a thousand competitors that stepped in between every step of the margin all the way down to you can buy 10 of them for a dollar on, you know, Amazon. Um, and what happens is like, this is how markets work, that eventually all the profits get competed away um, in the event that there's no moat or defensibility of the thing. So this is like one of the things I'll say with search is like in a keyword auction based volume constrained ecosystem, all of the profits eventually disappear, right? And so things that allow you to push the threshold at which the profit disappears are margin, so just the percentage, raw dollars, which in the form of AOV. So if you think about if you have 50% margin on a $20 product, you make $10. But if you have 50% margin on a $100 product, you make 50 bucks, right? So there's just more raw dollars if you can move the AOV up. And then I think a lot of the world that you guys live in, which is the capacity to generate ongoing value or LTV off those customers on an ongoing basis. And that's the way you sustain the inevitability 
of the rising cost of CAC is through those mechanisms. And so that sort of happens over time um, in different industries. It's one of the things that I love most about subscriptions is even though it's not suggested to not be profitable on your first order, you do have the luxury to stretch a little bit and you know be underwater on your first order with the assumption that they're going to have a second, third, fourth and ongoing recurring orders. Yeah, that's exactly right. And subscriptions are incredibly powerful that way in that you can generate massive ongoing LTV. It's, it's again, it's a system perfectly designed to generate LTV, right? And it does it really, really well. Um, and so if you have the capacity, a product that lends itself to that idea, then it's really, really powerful. And, and it's a thing that can help to offset rising CACs. It can give you a longer runway than other people, which is a competitive advantage to driving acquisition in those channels. Assuming you have a better product in the first place, which is a whole other conversation we got to get to. (laughs) Totally. Cool. Um, Lightning around. I got a couple last questions for you. Um, Piece of advice that you will give any small brand who's just starting out on subscriptions. Yeah. So I think small brands, the key is you have to become great at cash flow management. And if your mechanism is going to be subscriptions, you have to understand your cash conversion cycle on that purchase, right? Like, I mean, deeply and intimately understand this. Um, A lot of times we think about this as a marketing problem, and it certainly is. And you definitely have to have a product that actually makes sense. And you have to think about the pacing. And that's all true. But I actually see the biggest problem that people have is they're actually not clear on the way that they're going to actually make money and how the cash is going to show up and when it's going to show up relative to the business needs. Um, so understanding like, Hey, my inventory lead times are X. I'm going to pay this much for a purchase. The net result will be on day zero. I'm going to have this many dollars on day 30. I'm going to have this many dollars. I have to make a PO on this date. Payroll is on this date. Rent is due on this date. Like the businesses that I see where they have a lot of early success are actually people with more financial, um, wherewithal than others. And like, what this is really intimidating for a lot of entrepreneurs, because not many of us began our careers with that as our core skill. We were more marketer product innovative people, especially in e-com than we are finance people. Um, But what I'll tell you is you can learn and don't be intimidated and go after it. Um, One of my favorite books that we use to teach all of our growth guides, like our highest level account strategist um, is a book called how finance works by Monsieur Desai. Um, It's incredible. Uh, business intelligence or financial intelligence is another great book. If you're an employee of a company and you want to understand more about how your company makes money, like those things are an important critical skill uh, for subscription in particular, because the value capture is usually latent because you are going to have to wait for the cash to show up. You're going to sell something. You're going to be like, where's the money? It's not going to be there. You've got to understand when it's going to come and you've got to understand churn and the rec- like, there's a lot to it to, to do it well. It's just a big math problem. And at some point, totally is. Is what we were talking about earlier, you break down all this complicated stuff, you break it down into, okay, this state's coming here, this state's here, this state's here, then you kind of have a clear picture of what's going on. And and, and that's so, so and like, I, this is where the one of the skills that I, I'm learning to get better at, and I wish I was better at, and it's a, it's a restriction on our own growth is understanding debt facilities, understanding different vehicles for capitalization, understanding how to use cash well, like, those are things that will give you lifelines, understanding the how, like one of the most critical things that you can do is negotiate better terms with your supplier. Like there's not a bigger cash destroyer than having to pay for product up front, right? And so th- like those things are like the unspoken skills of the e-commerce entrepreneur of those that are winning is that those that can continue to add days on, I'm, I went from 50-50 upfront to on delivery to now I'm 10% upfront, 25% on delivery and 25 and then 70% net 60. Like that will transform the way that you have cash in your business. And if you can do those things, like that's where you win. And that's where like the reason we get to know this and why that we can speak to our clients this way is because like I spend as much time talking about demand planning and cash flow forecasting as I do because we're living it. And that's, I think, where we get this competitive advantage is that like the, the actual marketing mechanics and financial mechanics of marketing scale have to consider those things. This is the slowest lightning round ever, but I'm, I'm sorry. The content, so. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay, I'll do no, it's it's, it's great content. No, no, it's it's perfect. If you want to go the same the same length, we'll we'll keep it going there. Um, same question, but for larger brands, what is something that you can do that you know you function within that thirty million dollar range? And once you've hit that thirty million dollar, how do you take that next step to grow? Piece of advice. Um, I think it comes down to 
understanding different purchase behavior and connecting the, the parts of your organization on marketing and demand planning better, right? Um, I, I think that one of the bigger thing problems becomes like your balance sheet and inventory management when you get larger. And it's because in almost every organization I see, there's no relationship between the demand planning side of the business and the Facebook media buying side of the business that's creating the demand. The demand creation and the demand purchasing or the planning are very disassociated. And so what'll happen and I see this all the time in big companies. You have a media buyer who has a KPI that has to do with ROAS, who is does not care what product they sell. And one day it might be this many products on this one, and then the ROAS falls off and they're moving all that budget over here to this funnel because it's better and they don't care. Um, and so there's a big disassociation between this versus being disciplined about working to make things work. Um, I heard a great interview with the GM of the Rams who talked about drafting Jared Goff. And when he hired Sean McVay, they said, you know, Jared Goff had a horrible first season. What gave you guys the confidence to stick with him um, and have so much success? And he said, we believe that you have to work to make things work. Um, and so we thought about the, the receivers that we brought in and the system and the plays that we called for him. We put him in the position when it comes to selling things at that level. Like when you have that much demand planning, you don't get to just decide that a campaign doesn't work anymore. And I'm not going to sell that product anymore because you have 50,000 units in a warehouse somewhere. So now you have to work to make it work and you have to reimagine the possibility and you have to be more persistent at the larger stage about specific types of purchases that you're after versus in the early stage of businesses, you're just sort of following whatever works and you're letting that drive the decision-making. But when you get to big order quantities, you don't get to do that anymore. It's so funny when I ask this question to a handful of people, every time the, the answer is, you know, how do you scale your company? The answer is always something boring and unsexy and something oh, that yes. is not going to make headlines. It's, it's hysterical that everyone thinks from this entrepreneurial journey that, you know, it's, you got to be a leader and you got to do, you got to be yeah, a visionary. Yeah. Like, no, it's, you manage your inventory well, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And, and like, even within that, like the hidden thing, the biggest thing I see is the biggest problem is um, the incentive structures of the employees is like the number one problem I see in big organizations is that you don't, you don't like, so in the example I gave, right, you have um, a Facebook media buyer whose KPI is disassociated from a business outcome that's really critical. And so you've built a system where people are doing the thing that you ask them to do. Again, is your system designed for the outcome that it's generating? It is. Or like, hey, this person isn't incentivized to talk to that person or to ask their opinion or to consider them or, you know, um, and, and so in that ways, what you get, and it's really hard because it's super hard to tie everybody to a same the same direction, that from an organizational structure, even like for our agency at 90 people is like, it is such a challenge. Um, but I think great leaders and great organizational thinkers do it really well. Last question for you. What physical products are you subscribed to? So um, Whoop is my my favorite. Um, so it's kind of cheating, right? Because it's a uh, physical product plus a digital subscription. But I love yep, that business yep. model, right? And I love the way they do it, actually, right? Is I paid for a year up front. Um, so it doesn't actually feel like a recurring spend, which would have made it easy to cancel. It actually increased my level of investment in it. Um, so that is like the most obvious one to me um, is, is Whoop. I'm trying to think if there's any other like recurring... Um, Oh, I get, uh, this is a dumb one. Hold on. I get, uh, envelopes sent to me on a recurring basis because I'm an eBay seller of trading cards. So, um, that, Ooh, and then Rolo, which is my, um, label printer is the, my favorite product I've brought bought in a long time. And I pay them a subscription for access to cheaper shipping rates. Um, so again, physical product, digital subscription, I freaking love the business. And they're like, this is my favorite product I've bought in a long time is my Rolo printer. Interesting. Those are examples I had not heard of. So that's <laughs> breaking the box there, breaking the mold. I love it. <laughs> Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you having on here. Yeah, I appreciate you guys, man. Love the product. Appreciate everything you guys are doing and uh, look forward to following along. We want to thank Taylor once again for joining us. If you're interested in Common Thread Collective, you can head over to commonthreadco.com. If you're looking for more of our episodes, check us out at rechargepayments.com slash hit subscribe. And to get the latest episodes, remember to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from.